Some of you only need to look across the dinner table to find your closest connection to agriculture. Others of us need to look a little further back to find our farming family. My name is Portia Stewart. All four of my great-grandparents were farmers. But by my grandfather's generation, only my grandfather was still in agriculture. Now, like many Americans, I have no more farmers in my family. This made me wonder, have consumers lost their connection to the land? And have farmers lost their connections with consumers? Let's see if we can make some new connections. Welcome to Overheard, the Farm Journal Livestock podcast that connects the hearts and minds of producers and consumers to preserve our sustainable resources and provide high-quality food. the show with Have You Heard, the latest in livestock news. I'm joined now by Jennifer Scheich, editor of Farm Journal's Pork. Jennifer, we hear a lot about African swine fever in the news. For consumers, what is this disease? Well, African swine fever is a deadly virus that impacts pigs only. It does not impact people, and it does not impact the food supply. But it is a very serious disease for pigs and almost always results in death. Currently, there is no vaccine for African swine fever, and that makes it particularly challenging for the pork industry. So I know the first question uh, a lot of consumers ask is, can you eat the pork if the animal is ASF positive? Sure, and I think that's a fair question. I'm a mom, and I have three kids myself, and so, of course, that's something that, you know, you need to ask about, and I can understand why people might be concerned. But the good news is, is that African swine fever virus does not does not impact people at all. Humans cannot get this disease, and they cannot get it from pigs. They cannot get it from pork. So there are no food safety concerns with eating pork. It is absolutely safe, Um, and that's good news. But but also on that note, even, you know, at this point, we do not have any pigs that have ASF in the United States at this time. But even if we did, the USDA has strict protocols in place to prohibit sick animals from entering the food chain. So we do a lot to make sure that sick animals and animals with any kind of disease do not get into the food chain ever. Um, But even if something happened and they did, you cannot get African swine fever from meat. I know you touched on this, but but there's going to be a lot of people who say, can my dog get ASF? Can can I get ASF? Is who who else is susceptible? Sure. Um, ASF only affects swine, domestic pigs and wild pigs. So the disease actually started in Africa and affected um, warthogs 
and wild pigs over in Africa. Um, and so it has become adapted to swine only. So ASF cannot infect your non-swine pets or other livestock. If you have a pet like a mini pig or a teacup pig, you know, they are part of the pig family and they could be susceptible to this disease. Um, but otherwise, no, it is just a disease of pigs. So you mentioned that we currently do not have ASF in the United States. What is the United States doing to keep ASF out of the country? Well, we, we have a really great team of experts and leaders in the pork industry um, and in the government working hard to keep this deadly disease out of our country. Um, and we're doing everything possible to do so. Some of the ways that we try to keep the disease out is the disease is very easily spread by people and people have the ability to pick it up um, and carry basically fomites or carry the disease maybe on their bottom of their shoe, on their clothing or whatever. And so we make sure that we have very good um, U.S. Customs and Border Protection patrol out. And so they are are watching as people come from ASF's positive countries into the United States and checking to make sure that they are not bringing in any pork or pork products um, as the ASF virus can live in pork or pork products. Um, we also are, are working on doing more things to protect how feed is imported into the country, um, how different feed ingredients come in, because we have discovered that the ASF virus could live in, in feed as well, or feed ingredients. And so um, that's one way we're doing it. Biosecurity is ultimately the most important thing that we can do to keep it out. And so we make sure pork producers do that they're following good biosecurity practices on their farm. And so whether that's showering in and showering out, um, making sure that they do not go to um, from farm to farm without having some downtime in between when our when we go overseas, pork producers are going overseas. They often leave their clothing over there and buy new clothing before returning home. I mean, there's just so many different things that you can do to have good biosecurity to protect the pig herds here. And so, you know, all of those practices that are basically already in place have just been heightened and strengthened at this time um, in an effort to keep this disease out. Right. And... And I know that this is a disease only of pigs, but have you seen it affecting other segments of agriculture? Sure. I mean, the thing about African swine fever is um, it the pork industry impacts so many things. So when you have, there are so many fewer pigs in China now because the disease has caused so many pigs to, to be slaughtered or killed, um, to prevent the disease from continuing to spread. And because of that, there are less feed ingredients being purchased. So there's less corn, less soybean, even less whey and other, some milk products that are used in, in pig feed. Um, so all of those things impact um, all those other commodity groups, but it also impacts um, the marketplace and the economy. Um, African swine fever is definitely taking its toll, and that's why we're doing everything we can to make sure that we keep the, dis 
that disease out of North America, out of the United States. Thank you, Jennifer. Jennifer's written about how pork producers can talk to their neighbors about ASF on her website, porkbusiness.com. You can also find more information about uh, the disease and how to prevent it at porkbusiness.com slash ASF. Next up, let's meet a millennial. Here, millennial consumers share their feelings about meat and dairy, what they eat, where they shop, and how they make their purchasing decisions. Today, I'm joined by Amelia. Hello. Hi, Amelia. So, first question, are you a meat eater? I am. And what... What do you like? I like uh, beef. I like a good hamburger or a good roast beef. I like fish, like shrimp, which I guess is shellfish technically, um, and salmon and other fish. And I like chicken too. I, pork is probably not my favorite except for bacon and sausage, which are very important. I love bacon and I love seeing all the crazy ways people eat bacon. Mm. My kids can smell it, and then they come running to the house. We have something called bacon truck, and bacon truck is where Dad delivers the bacon to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously bacon fan to here too. Um, So how do you make decisions about food? Well, I'm not necessarily the primary grocery shopper for my household, but as far as the decisions that I do make, um, I like to read food magazines a lot, like Bon Appetit or Martha Stewart or, um, you know, browse food sites online and so I get a lot of inspiration from there in terms of uh, both what I might cook or prepare myself or what I might excuse me what I might order at a restaurant also. Any favorite celebrity chefs or? Uh, Not really but I really love the great British baking show. Heard it's really good. So I like Mary Berry a lot. Um, my daughter loves that show. I don't, I've never seen an episode and probably... That's great. Yeah. That's great. So um, we have heard that millennials spend more on food than clothing. Is that true for you? I don't know that it necessarily is. I've never sat down and compared my food budget versus my clothing budget or what you know I actually spend versus what I budget for it. Um, I definitely don't mind spending money on food um, if it's you know, for a special experience or something like that, or for something that I couldn't make myself um, as easily as purchasing it. But I like to get good deals on food too. So I'm I'm not actually sure. Right. Are you a coupon cutter? No. um, If a grocery store, you know, has a like buy two for the price of three, no, buy three for the price of two, I guess, you know, a sale of some kind. Right. Um, I like deals like that, but I, I wouldn't say go out of my way to find deals. I let them find me. It's funny. My husband, he will, um, he's addicted to the fuel saver situation where you get the money off the gas Mm -hmm. and he will do ridiculous things. Like, why did you bring that home? Well, you got 30 cents off a gas. Well, okay. But I'm not going to eat that either. right? (laughs) (laughs) So last question, what's your favorite guilty pleasure treat? Probably a good hamburger because that is one of the things that I crave every once in a while. Or I really like ice cream too. Okay, I'm going to ask you, favorite burger place, favorite type of ice cream? I like Five Guys because they have really good basic burgers that you know aren't super fancy or anything like that. They're just really 
good and good quality ingredients too. And then favorite ice cream. I like really good basic ice cream like vanilla or chocolate that you can add your own toppings to, but I like more uh, experimental, shall we say, flavors too, like at a cherry goat cheese ice cream once that was really amazing. So yeah, it, it all depends on my mood at the time, I right. guess. I like coffee ice cream too, if that's really good. Oh yeah, that sounds amazing. Thank you, Amelia. Sure, thank you. So I'm joined now by Jim Rovers and Sophie Cranley of AFIMAC, Global Risk Management and Elite Security. They're a company that works to mitigate and eliminate risk, to protect people and property, and they recently spoke at the Animal Ag Alliance. You want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So uh, our company uh, was formed in 1986, and, and really we try to uh, carve a niche out of the security and investigation industry. And for the past 30 years, our dealings have been mainly around any form of protest, whether that be mining, lumber, pulp and paper, oil and gas, animal activists, uh, and, and things of that nature. We found it was a very uh, underserviced uh, area. Not many people played in the space. Not many people took the time to understand the movements, the activities. And come up with customized solutions. Right. Yeah, absolutely, at the end of the day. So right now in the animal activist space, um, sort of our most popular offering is we're doing a lot of uh, social media and online intelligence gathering. So, uh, you know, we, we get what we get from, uh, uh, you know, Google Alerts and things of that nature, but there's two or three levels below that, and, and we've been uh, successful in, in putting together uh, an array of intelligence that have sort of helped uh, organizations, farmers, meat processing facilities mitigate risks that they've got, uh, you know, coming at them and, and understanding, you know, what they may need to do and, and, and away go from that perspective. We also get involved in uh, actual investigative work, both surveillance and undercover investigations. So again, that's just a human form of gathering uh, more information about your uh, group that may be targeting you or individuals. And then uh, certainly doing a lot of work where uh, groups are being heavily targeted with protection agents. So when we talk about protection agents, you know, the, the old way of doing security was sort of that big, beefy, brawny uh, uh, person that dealt with something. And when you're dealing with protesters, you have to bring a whole new uh, set, of, set of tactics. So it's all about uh, de-escalation, confrontation management. We certainly communicate with the protesters that we respect their right to protest, we respect their right to free speech. However, there are uh, boundaries and limits to uh, accessing property, buildings, barns, those sorts of things. So we like to t say when we're speaking with people, firm but fair. Um, and, and our whole goal is not to have any security that we would offer to any group become the story. You know, And I think if you look at some of the things that happened uh, in the U.S. with the, uh, the pipeline protest where uh, things got very, very heated and, and security almost played a role in escalating versus de-escalating. Right. 
Um, and, and so our role at the end of the day is to just bring a, 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 a yeah, different approach, but still get to the same end goal. You know what I mean? But just being respectful about it. And then we do have a lot of groups reaching out for us to conduct uh, threat risk assessments. So again, back to uh, target hardening. How do we make our, our property, our farm, our meats processing plants um, the target that the activists don't want to go after because they have the right things in place and then lastly uh, quite a bit of training so uh, we can't be everywhere all the time um, I've been really really refreshed particularly in the dairy space we've been introduced to some farmers that are just really good people dialed in they they uh, you know they get it two of them we spoke to recently were actually lawyers by uh, by trade and it's the the whole um, you know and I'll use this example to be a bit graphic the farmer that elected to spray manure on the protesters um, that may have felt really good at the time but really what's happened from that is it's been a, a call to action for all the uh, right. protesters in that area so educating what to do what not to do how to engage how not to engage um, how your words may be used against you or twisted and and really where we started our conversation was just building confidence up within that farming community to say listen you have rights uh, you're allowed to do certain things here's how you need to communicate articulate document and uh, and we're seeing some people do some uh, some really uh, amazing amazing things so Sophie anything you want to add to that no I think you've captured it all one question I had about this is I thought through it. I'm just going to be honest. It it feels scary to me when I hear people's stories about uh, being confronted by activists. I frankly would be probably frightened in, the, in, in, in that moment. And the only way I can think of to make it parallel, the analogy that comes to mind is somebody coming into your house, maybe you work at home, and criticizing maybe how you took care of your pet or how you fed your child or and and really looking around taking a camera to your house and exposing how you live because for farmers a lot of times their their place of business and and their home can be the same place so it feels like a an almost emotional violation yeah, so, you know, I would say that most of the people we come in contact with, if they have not been consistently targeted by activists, they are absolutely rattled. Uh, when we get on those calls, a lot of it is, it's going to be okay, here's what we're going to do, um, here's the challenges, you know, here's how we work around it, here's how we make it better, um, you know, in a way, go that way. So it is very, very uh, unsettling, uh, for sure. I think uh, just putting some tools in a toolbox for them, and, and Sophie and I use that term, and Sophie, I'll let you expand on some of the toolboxes we're building out for different uh, groups in a moment, but just getting a, a series of actions that they can take, things that they need to do, um, and just getting them into a, you know, a, a, 
uh, I'll call it a, a, a yeah, in a comfortable spot where everything's going to be okay. Because one thing we we know from dealing with conflict and it's human nature, we have one of two responses: flight or fight. Um, I've had farmers on calls that have said, um, "I'm just going to lock myself in my house." They, that's how violated they they uh, they feel, or lock right. myself in the barn. And that's not the right answer either. It's your property. You know, you have a right to communicate that people shouldn't come on the property. And then the other side of that is, um, you know, I'm going to call ten of my farmer buddies, and we're, we're you know, I, I won't say call to arms, but they're certainly. Um, they're prepared to fight for what they believe in, and 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 I would look at it this way: uh, if somebody was going to take my livelihood away from me, or potentially ruin that, and and what I know is I grew up on a farm, right? And uh, my dad start, did start from scratch, uh, uh, buying a farm and getting started. But our neighbors, they were third and fourth generation. Like all they know how to do is farm. This was handed down from granddad to dad to. Uh, here we go, they're raising either daughters or sons to get into it, and it's, uh, you know, it's my way of life is going to be disrupted. So, Sophie, talk about the toolboxes we're building out for some of the producers. Yes, absolutely. So, some of the toolbox uh, things that we are implementing for different various groups, so let's take farming into an example, an actual farm property. Um, so, we're building out techniques to uh, farmers, uh, farmer workers, anybody that would be on the farm when an activist group would approach and it would run from you know how to um, approach them um, to be armed with a camera not obviously in their face but at a safe distance to capture all the evidence that they need to obviously they're capture their side of the story um, we also uh, assist with uh, development of a communication plan so working with our communications teams building out a you know a sound plan as to who to contact who to release uh, information to um, and then obviously to how to react to activists when communicating with them because obviously they can't always wait for communications people to show up so it's you know obviously stating uh, you have the right to um, protest, uh, but this is private property, this is my personal home. Right. Um, you know, so things of that, that's what we're kind of building out. Um, and then the other side, we're doing more of the toolbox of securing, you know. Farmers tend not to have that security background, as you mentioned, and as Jim mentioned previously. Um, so what we're doing is, you know, the light housekeeping. Uh, is everything locked? Is there no trespassing? Is the fences all up? Um, or, you know, the cattle housing in the back of the, back of the property rather than the front of the property? Is, uh, you know, so just making sure that you're taking off all those boxes um, gives them obviously a lot more confidence when dealing with those situations and while waiting for law enforcement or backup to arrive. I think the other thing on the toolbox piece, just to tie a bow around it, and mm -hmm. here's one of the things that I think is, is lacking and needs to be built out. Um, Farmers often view it as, whew, the protesters showed up, I asked them not to trespass. It might be a peaceful vigil. We had one last week where they showed up, they lit some candles, they had some flowers, they sang a song, sang and, a song and left. I mean, uh, hey, you brought awareness to uh, uh, your cause. You got your, you know, your your 30 second or two minute uh, YouTube video. 
you know, real, real, uh, I won't say nice story, but it's a story anyway that you, you know, you've got out of there. We see though that the farmers, you know, they'll have a, uh, uh, what I call a near miss. And I always say that was great. They had a peaceful vigil. You can guarantee you're going to have one that's going to be a little bit different a week from now or a month from now or a year from now. And, and getting the farmer's head around evidence collection, right? So back to what Sophie said, um, you know, if you're delivering a message to the protesters, whether it's a farmhand or your wife, again, as Sophie mentioned, videotape from a respectful distance. And again, you're documenting what you said, who you said it to, you're identifying uh, who these individuals are. And, you know, we often uh, turn quickly on law enforcement and say, you know, no, they're not doing a lot. But what we find is, hey, it was 15 people they showed up. We don't know who we are. We didn't write any license plate numbers down. We didn't identify any of them. We have no, no, uh, you know, no pictures, no video, and away you go that way. So I think taking that longer term look at it, and then I encourage everybody that we talk to, you know, if you're in the beef producing industry, share that information because that same group is going to show up at right. your neighbor's farm, and away you go that way. And then ultimately what you're able to do is then it's a puzzle. You're building all the pieces out. You know who the players are. You know who the influences are, as Sophie talked about, who, uh, who instigates stuff. And ultimately where you want to arrive is at some point, whether the police, and everybody looks at the police as their silver bu uh, bullet, did the police lay charges? And to charge somebody criminally is very, very, you have to have it nailed down. It's got to be buttoned up. And what I keep speaking to different groups about is, as an industry, why are you not going after these groups civilly? You know who the players are. They've identified themselves. We've got YouTube videos of, I went into this barn. Here's the pig I stole. Um, here's what I did. Here's the damage I, I did to uh, farming equipment. And it's all out there. Nobody's captured it, nobody's logged it, nobody's uh, done the right thing. And where I'm taking this at the end of the day is, civilly, your farm and your name has been tarnished. You may have indeed suffered some form of uh, economic loss, and that's really one of the, the key things. So take the dairy farmer. Right. They, breach, they breach your milk house, right? They right. get into your milk house, and now the question becomes, I don't know what they put in the tank, but they were lifting the lids up on it or they, they accessed it. I gotta dump all that uh, gallons and gallons, you know, we can't risk product contamination. And let's for a moment say that that tank full of milk is worth $5,000. As a result of this activity, I have suffered a loss. And so I, I think some more sophistication needs to be added to the, to the uh, legal uh, strategies that get brought against these groups because here's what we know based on all our years of experience. 2% of any protest movement are radicals and you can't change their mind and you can't control them. They're going to continue to do what they, they do until such time as they wind up in legal trouble. Right. But what we do know is the other 98% of the people are good people. They're protesting. It's a cause they believe in. They feel passionate about it at the end of the day. But when they see pressure coming against them in the form of legal action, they, they, shy away. they shy away. So, you know, imagine if you're sitting at home and you're having dinner and a 
process server bangs on your door and says you've been served and you open that up and go, uh-oh, that disruption I caused it, I let all those cattle out at a beef farm and they got away, that cost that farmer $50,000 and I'm on the hook for part of that and I've been identified. Um, or even coming back to their own employment. You know, we've had protesters where we found out that they were nurses or teachers, you know, so that's, that's, that's an, another element that uh, we need to focus on as well. Absolutely, Sophie. And we had a, a, a chap here recently. He worked for a hydro utility in Canada. He did something really egregious, and uh, his employer terminated him like bang on the. Regardless that it, you know, the event didn't happen during work hours, but you are always a brand ambassador, no matter what you do. Absolutely. That's all about connecting the dots, right? Working, working as a group, working as an industry, sharing information. Collaboration. Uh, collaborating. And, and so getting a proper reporting mechanism in place when you have an incident. So back to what Sophie talked about on the toolbox, you know, we talk to law enforcement quite often, and here's what we hear. Yeah, there was an incident on a farm. We're aware about it. Do you know that we got 36 911 calls, right? Right. So they begin to view it as, oh, that's their nuisance calls. They're, you know, a bunch of farmers that are overreacting. And maybe those farmers start to feed those calls. You know, maybe they do call 911 direct. That depends on what the industry association decides. Or maybe they call that into a central point and all engagement with law enforcement. Because one of the other things when you're talking about a legal strategy versus a law enforcement strategy, who calls the police, when did they call, who did they speak to, who responded, how long did it take them to get there, what did they do when they when they responded, because part of what we're seeing at the end of the day when legal gets involved is they're not only looking at the financial loss, but they're also looking at, we, we come to trust on the uh, rule of law, you know, we, we, we think we've done the right thing, and however, we're not getting the support that we think we should get, you know, so the, the group or the industry will raise that and then the question becomes, who did you call? When did you call them? Who did you speak to? Who showed up? What was their badge number? What was their response? What took place? And this is not about uh, displaying the, the police in a bad light, but at the end of the day, those are all critical elements that have to be nailed down so the attorneys can say, listen, this particular farmer sought police assistance on 14 occasions. Uh, in that geographic area, there's been 23 protests. Right. Law enforcement has been engaged 68 times with respect to this. Here's the response levels. Here's what's taken place. And ultimately, um, you're, you're starting, uh, starting to tighten that up. So the comment I made to one of the producers from a farming level is I said, think of yourselves as boa constrictors, right? You're just slowly tightening and tightening and tightening, and really what you want to do is make it uncomfortable for the average rank-and-file protester to want to come to your site and cause disruption. And we've seen it where successfully main radical agitators have shown up at protest sites, and let's call them the soccer moms or the more passive activists, they've just gone and left. Like, because no good is going to come of this, and I do not want my name or reputation uh, tangled up in this. 
That's a really, I think, a powerful point uh, is is the idea of influencers and who do we think of as influencers. And uh, I think something uh, I've heard you guys talk about before is is really the education gap that maybe these influencers, they might believe things, but may not even be based in science. So what, how do we handle these people? What, how do we educate them? Is there a role for reaching out or, uh, and, and how do we tell uh what, what are the best ways to engage or not engage? I would say this, and then I'll turn it over to Sophie. The, the radical elements of those activist groups, it's an ideology. You are not going to, you're, you're, you're not going to put a dent in that. Right. Where, the, where you need to go to work is in that other 98% that, guess what? They want to be heard. They want to have something to say. Um, work with them. Educate them. Uh, you know, in a way to go that way. The radical element, try as you might in all our years of dealing with protesters, they have a thought process and a belief. We can say that it's wrong or right or whatever the case may be. Very hard to convince. The other thing that we're seeing with activist groups, uh, there's almost a rock star mentality where there's a one-up. You got into a barn and you took a pig. You got into a dairy farm and you uh, took calves. You got to a beef farm and you let go and, and, and they're almost... Uh, jockeying to become social media sensations. Would that be fair to say, Sophie? Absolutely. So um, just to go back to what you uh, kind of posed the question, um, I think the best strategy is to continue communication. Um, I find that a lot of organizations, especially when you know things tend to heat up, especially with the uh, radical players, um, some brands hush up and, you know, obviously the influencers pick up on that and they don't, they, they will stop doing their research, obviously, because I know a lot of influencers, yes, they don't always have the right um, information in their hands, um, but I do think they do a good job of trying to understand more every time they do um pick up on stuff, they do continue to research. Um, so I think keeping that line of communication open and, you know, responding um, appropriately to any type of, you know, wrong, inf- misguided information that was put out there, having a, a response to it is key. The other thing I would, I would uh, say, um, and I said this at the Agri-Alliance conference, um, we're seeing some outreach uh, by the activists to schools. So there, that's you know, I call that a hearts and mind campaign. Our, uh, our one of our people in finance here had a daughter go to a birthday party, six year olds, and came back, and she spent the next half hour on the car ride home telling her dad how bad farmers are and how they hurt animals. Um, to find out that the uh, the mother was a, an activist, she believed in a, a you know in a in a, in a vegan uh, vegan diet at the end of the day and if you so if you look at that you know one hour birthday party the influence it had on the uh, on the little one there and and what I said to uh, I think it was some of the folks in the dairy business I was talking to amazingly if you look back at in time we all went out to a grandfather's farm and uncle's farm we saw the animals we saw what farmers did right you know, I always look at it and 
and go, is it, is it in the farmer's best interest to herd an animal? Now, there's some bad seeds that get hired and they need to be weeded out and the industry needs to out them when they do something wrong because it's it's just not appropriate. But I think we've lost, uh, you know, I, you know, I asked my daughter a while ago and she's 19 years old about where do you think that came from? You know, we would say, hey, I was, you know, it was planted in the ground or it came from a farm. And I, I really realized that, oh my gosh, we were sort of missing a whole layer here and getting people out, you know, get out, see a farm, see what a farmer does, go visit, go do different, uh, you know, do different things. And, uh, and, you know, in a way to go because we have lost touch with our, uh, agricultural roots. We'll share part two of our talk with Jim and Sophie in the next episode. For more information about African swine fever, visit porkbusiness.com slash ASF. Learn more about how to safeguard your farm from activists at milkbusiness.com. Thanks for joining us on Overheard, the Farm Journal Livestock Podcast. We'll see you next time.